0: Uh let's begin with prayer shall we and we'll we'll dive into this today. Father, thank you for bringing us together on this Lord's Day. Thank you for the good word that we heard this morning and and Lord, we do lift our hands to you and praise you and thank you that you have stooped low to draw us to yourself and your son. And I pray that that reality would shape the ways in which we view the world and others and even view ourselves, Lord. So blessed this morning, I pray that you'll give clarity to the teacher and toward those who are here to listen. I pray that you'll open our minds and our hearts and if any of that good stuff happens, we know that it'll be because of your kindness and your presence and so we thank you in advance. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Come on in. I, I, I thought um, we'd do Joel today that's all right. Um, and if it's not all right, I'm kind of stuck with Joel. That's uh, where we're going to roll. Um, the book of Joel, if you remember our discussions about a couple weeks ago, for those of you who have been with us for the long haul, Joel is an interesting book because of its placement in the Twelve, in the Minor Prophets. So when you think about Hosea all the way to Malachi, and you have these um, twelve books that really, at least by the time of the second century B.C., had been understood as a single book, one book. Um, so you have individual voices, but there's something about the way in which these twelve individual voices come together to form a whole that's more than just the sum of their various discrete parts. There's something interesting about the whole dynamic. Joel has been a, a book that's fascinated scholars, especially in the last 20 to 30 years, because of its placement. In other words, Joel, by most standards, and I'm, I'm in this crowd myself, although I guess I could change my mind, but for now I'm in this crowd, Views Joel, we view Joel as a book that's later, um, probably a book that was written in the post-exilic period. So we're talking about it's, it's nestled between Hosea and Amos, who are both eighth- century prophets, that's 150 something years before the destruction of the southern kingdom by Babylon, and it's quite likely that Joel was written after the coming back from exile some maybe 200 years later, something like that. So we're talking about a pretty significant expanse of time here. So we would expect, given the chronological outlay of the, of the minor prophets, that Joel would be somewhere nestled around, I don't know, Zephaniah and, and, um, and Malachi, somewhere back there. But it's here, right between Hosea and Amos. So that, that, that is of interest to me. And, uh, and another part that I think that's interesting about Joel is Joel is a book... That trades on an enormous amount of prophetic literature that comes before him you 'll see Joel quoting um, he's, he 's and we 'll see it today quotes Amos, quotes Isaiah so you 'll find these and the technical term for it is intertextuality you 'll find these textual intertexts embedded all throughout Joel so that Joel is in some sense making a kind of massive statement about the prophetic tradition that came before him, and giving us a framework for what comes afterward, both in the life of believers, but also in the book of the Twelve, in the Minor Prophets. So Joel is a book that really centers around the theme of the day of the Lord. Three chapters is all we have, right? Um, Actually, we have four chapters. This is one of those funny things where in the Hebrew Bible there's only three chapters, same verses, but they order it differently. In um, our English text, we have four chapters, but this is a small book uh, that packs a mighty punch and the one of the major themes if not the major theme of Joel is this coming to terms with what the day of the Lord is the day of the Lord now to kind of set this into a contextual frame, the day of the lord's not a happy time by the way, and we 're going to come to that i was uh, as I was preparing this a little bit yesterday in and then getting up this morning and looking through it as well. Um, I, uh, I wanted to read to you a, uh, a Johnny Cash song. I don't normally do this kind of thing. I'm not all that chick. But um, I, I, thought I'd, I thought I'd read some of Johnny Cash's When the Man Comes Around. Do you know this song? I got in the, ca- in the car with a colleague of mine to go to lunch. And he said, have you ever heard Johnny Cash's When the Man Comes Around? I'm like, no, I haven't heard that. He said, let me play it for you. And I was just you know, like that on, in the car. Um, this is how it goes, right? Um, well, first he reads. have you, you know the song? You, no, no. First he reads Revelation in his grovelly old man voice. This is old man, John. I guess he's always kind of an old man voice. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder and one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse. And then the guitar starts going. You can hear, right? And here's how it goes. There's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everyone won't be treated all the same. There will be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. The man's Jesus, by the way. Right? The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and each sup. For you partake of that last offered cup, or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around. Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers, 100 million angels singing, multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum, voices calling, voices crying, some are born and some are dying, it's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. And the whirlwind is in the thorn tree. The virgins are all trimming their wicks. The whirlwind is in the thorn tree. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Till Armageddon, no shalom, no shalom. Then the father hen will call his chickens home. The wise men will bow down before the throne. And at his feet they'll cast their golden crown when the man comes around. Whoever is unjust, let him be unjust still. Whoever is righteous, let him be righteous still. Whoever is filthy, let him be filthy still. Listen to the words long written down when the man comes around. And he goes again and hear the trumpets, hear the pipers. That's a kind of haunting thing. Now, I don't know how many of you grew up in the kind of Baptist world that I grew up in, but we would say after a song like that, that dog will hunt, right? I mean, we used to sing... We used to sing um, hymns during our invitations. I, I preached one time up at uh, up at a Baptist church outside of Huntsville, and um, and I and I you know I, and the, the the minister said when you're done preaching you can offer the call, and I said what do you mean the call? <laughs> and and I, I said and she said you can ask people if they want to come forward. And to get saved. And I, and at the time I was in, in, the, in the, in the Presbyterian church and I said, get saved. I said, ma'am, I'm, a, I'm a Presbyterian. We don't really all, that concerned about that. And she looked at me like I was serious. Like, well, I well, I don't know how to do the call. You'll have to do that part. Um, I heard hymns during my call, things like, someday you'll hear God's final call. I mean, any of you know these hymns? I mean, these are the kind of hymns that if you weren't saved and redeemed, you're going to get saved, right? I mean, that's going to happen again. Joel is a book that comes at you with this kind of force, I believe. It has that kind of um I'm low flying here, but that kind of Johnny Cash feel to it, the man's coming around. And it's the day of the Lord. Um Joel 2:2 is a verse. I'll read it to you. It starts off Joel 2:1, "Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm in my holy mountain." Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. This is that Johnny Cashin. Let everyone tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Um, if That's a direct quote, by the way, out of Amos. I want to read it to you out of Amos because I think you'll see a fuller explication of what this is talking about. Isaiah Amos 5.18 says, Woe to you! who desired the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? I mean, this is, this is Amos is saying, and I think what he's doing is he's tapping into um, half-baked theology is I think the best way of understanding it. A half-baked theology where, and you know this, right? I mean, some of these things can be reduced to the level of cliché. But, um, you know, half-truths are often whole lies, right? And, and some of the prophets in the land, the false prophets in the land, had half-truths on their side. And I think even my students or students at Beeson Divinity School, and so this is a seminary context, are, are often surprised to find out every heretic in the life of the church had a few Bible verses on their side, right? I mean, Arius had a Bible verse or two, the guy who didn't believe that Jesus was eternally the Son of God, he had a Bible verse or two to point to to say, see I, I, I've got the Bible behind me, but there's are half truths that aren't wed to the whole of the canon, and this is happening, I think, in in, um, in Joel's and really in the whole history of, of Israel, where you'll have people who are presenting a Zion theology that is texts like Psalm 46, though the gates of hell should shake it, Zion will never be moved. I love those psalms, and they're true. But, taken in isolation from the entirety of the biblical witness, they can become um, untrue Is't that interesting how that works? In other words, what um, Amos is saying is you typically think of the day of the Lord as a good thing as a day of salvation, and it can be that and often is that is that, but you cannot divorce the notion of the day of the Lord from God's ultimate character, who He is, who He calls you to be, what He's called you to be and to do, what we might call a covenantal frame of theology. So here Amos says, you think the day of the Lord is a good thing? You're asking for God to show up? You think that means that God is bringing salvation in His arm? This is not that time. So why?" He's asking this sort of incredulous question. Why would you want the day of the Lord? I don't really know what Amos is tapping into, but he's tapping into something. People are crying out for the day of the Lord, and Amos is saying, be careful because you, you might just get what you're asking for. And he goes on and he says, and we saw this already in Joel, it is darkness, it's not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. You hear that? These are powerful words. You kind of run away from a lion, and then you meet a bear. Or he went into the house and leaned with his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I tell people, if you want to look looking for a beach read, leave Amos at home, maybe Joel too, right? <laughs> so the day of the Lord generally is the day spoken of in the Bible, or at least in the prophets, when God establishes his sovereignty and he cuts down the proud. Well, let me read to you from Isaiah 2.12, if you don't mind. This is a central verse in this notion of the day of the Lord. Isaiah 2.12 says, For the Lord of hosts has a day. There's a day coming, and the Lord of the hosts has it. Against all that is proud and lofty. Against all that is lifted up and high. So what is this day of the Lord? This day of the Lord, the the day that the Lord has is a day when He comes and He establishes His own sovereign position on the throne. A position that frankly has never been challenged or thwarted, but in our own conception of it may be um, laid low or at least may be um, understood in a way that doesn't accord with what it actually is. And the Lord comes and He establishes His sovereignty. And part of the establishment of His sovereignty is cutting low of the pride of man. That's at the heart of the prophets. At the heart of the prophets is any time the people of God raise and exalt themselves, the Lord comes in as the great tree feller and He, and he cuts them down. I mean, this is where, frankly, Karl Barth, the theologian that I, I guess will just forever have a man crush on, um, but Karl Barth, don't tell him I said that. I mean, he he's dead. I guess that was a matter. But um, Bart emphasizes in his doctrine of the atonement of what God has done for us in Jesus. He emphasizes that at the heart of sin is the pride of man. At the heart of sin. I mean, think even back to the garden. You, you take this. You can be like God. Right? This pride... It's self-sufficiency. It's self-authentication. I was surprised last year. I was I was um, asked um, by your husband, Jason Wallace. I was asked to do a, le- a lecture for some undergrads, and so I had to read Aristotle's. Nicomachean Ethics. Now, that's not something, again, not another beach read. um, But when you're friends with Jason Wallace, you read such things. Um, And so I was reading this, preparing for a lecture for students. And and what Aristotle lays out in his Ethics, some of you may remember this from undergrad or Philosophy 101, but he's trying to raise the question, what is the good, and how does one lead the excellent life? I mean, how do we lead the best lives that we can lead? And he talks about intellectual virtue, and he talks about moral virtue. And intellectual virtue can only be learned, and moral virtue is by the habituation of ourselves towards certain practices. Living in the mean between two extremes, right? And he's got fascinating discussions about people, um, who are either buffoons, right, or bores. He talks about these kind of people. In other words, people who just seem to like all of life is a joke, that's a buffoon, right? Somebody who can't laugh at all, that's a bore. But the virtuous person is right in the middle, right in the mean between those two realities. You know, you know what one of the aspects of Aristotle that I found so fascinating? Do you know what is not viewed as a virtue in Aristotle and really the classic Greco-Roman world? Humility. That's not a virtue. Actually, that's something to be avoided in an act of self-authentication. That's what Aristotle's raising there in those ethics. How can you authenticate yourself to be genuinely the human that you need to be? Answer, you live in a virtuous life in between the mean and you find that mean. Self-authentication. And the Bible and frankly the Christian tradition from Augustine all the way down says a big fat no to that. No, it's not self-authentication. In fact, the Gospel completely reverses that. The Gospel makes what's up in our minds actually down. And what's down in our minds actually up. I heard a great lecture this week um, at Samford from Joel Green, a New Testament scholar who is doing work in Luke's Gospel. And he said this notion of up and down, Luke, via Jesus, reworks all of that. Suffer the children to come unto me was the lecture he was giving. Let the children come to me. Now we have a very romanticized view of children, don't we? We love the little kids, and we see them in church, and they're going out, they're running down, and you know, we we love that. That that romanticized view of children is a rather modern phenomenon. They were not viewed with that kind of romanticism in the first century world. That's why, I mean, in other words, we should expect the disciples to act the way they did to the kids. You're bringing your one one chapter says they brought their infants to Jesus. An infant? Get that, you know, get that away, right? And Jesus says, "No, suffer them to come unto me." And women who are weeping, and who are the woman who wipes Jesus' feet. I mean, all of these people that we put on the margins of society, Jesus brings them right to the center, and he says, "No, that's that's who I came for." Why? Because Jesus and the gospel and the minor prophets here—they're they're reversing our notion of what's up and what's down, just reversing it. And where we might think pride, and I, we, you, we all wrestle with this, don't we? I, I, li- I live with this tension. I mean, the tension between ambition and trying to, you know, promote forward yourself, and yet without self-promotion, it's just like, oh God, I just want to take a nap thinking about it, right? <laughs> um, but when it comes to the gospel, right? When it comes to the way in which the prophets help shape my understanding of what the gospel is, the gospel tells us. That human self-authentication and self-sufficiency is the actual opposite of what God wants from his people. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of God. And this is where I think Bard is so fascinatingly beautiful in his explanation of this. And how does God deal with the pride of humanity? By his own humility. God God destroys the pride of humanity by his own self-humiliation. When he comes down and the second person of the Trinity takes on flesh and becomes what he once was not by taking on flesh, entering into humanity and actually reversing our order of what's up and down and then bringing humanity back into the very life of God himself. How does our pride get destroyed? Our pride gets destroyed at the cross. When we look at God in His humiliation suffering for us, and our world begins to turn upside down. And by the way, that impacts, I think, and we all wrestle with this, kyrie a liaison, right? But that impacts the way in which we relate to others, does. The way in which we think about what's up and what's, what's down. Well, there are five or a few points that I want to make this morning. I just said five, and you got nervous. Don't worry. Um, Here's here's some explanations about the character of the Day of the Lord in Joel. Okay, the character of the Day of the Lord in Joel. Number one, um, Joel's conception of the Day of the Lord has a clear outcome. It has a clear outcome. Joel, chapter two, verse twenty-seven, which is really the end. Of the first part of Joel, Joel one one through two twenty seven is the first part of Joel. and this is how it ends. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I, the Lord, am your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. There's an end here. What is the end? The end of the day of the Lord, the goal of the day of the Lord is for the people to know the Lord, to know His name, and to recognize that their salvation depends on God being near them, in their midst. This is riddled with themes out of Exodus. And again, I told you that Joel is known for bringing themes from the prophets. He's really known for bringing themes from all over the Bible. Exodus and Amos and Isaiah, they're all here. This is a major Exodus theme. You shall know my name. You shall know who I am. This is, if um, we won't chase it because the time is running, but Exodus 6-7 is, is overlaid here in what Joel is talking about. And you shall know my name and you shall know that I'm in your midst. Now, going back to Exodus, God Moses asks, God, what do I tell them your name is? And he says, you tell them I am who I am. Or another way of saying that, you tell them I will be who I will be. I'm revealing my name to them. I'm letting them know who I am. And how do they know who you are? They know who you are when they see you in, the, in their midst. When you're near them. It, this is fascinating to me. It's fascinating because this is where I think the Old Testament is laying groundwork for us. That makes us, in retrospect, go, oh yeah, the incarnation, of course, that's how it's going to go. Of course. Because the very salvation of humanity depends on the nearness of God. Of God being in their midst. Isaiah language, Emmanuel, God with us. So the outcome of the day of the Lord is the fact that God will be known and He will will be known as the one who is in their midst. And God in their midst is our hope, our hope of salvation. The second thing, there's a couple of bookends here. Joel chapter 1, verse 4. What the cutting. You know this about Joel. He's got a fascination with locusts, right? What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left... This is a Hebrew student's nightmare, by the way. Four different words for locust. It's not a very common word. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. That's That's a bad day. Bad year to be a farmer, I think. Right? And then when you go to Joel chapter 2, verse 25, a verse that's meant a great deal to me, I will restore to you the years which the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent to you. How does Joel begin? He begins his prophecy with this notion of God's judgment coming and God's judgment coming through a locust plague. And again, you know, if we just sort of think about this, think about the Exodus themes that are here. What's one of the major plagues that works out in the ex- Exodus chapter 10? It's a locust plague. So here we have a locust plague that's not coming on the Egyptians, it's coming on whom? It's coming on God's very people. This is a day of judgment. But what's fascinating, and we won't take the time to explore it, but what's fascinating in Joel, is this locust plague, which very well may have been, I don't know, but it could have been a locust plague that people at some point in Israel's history may have gone, oh yeah, do you remember the locust plague of 32? That was horrible, right? I don't know, maybe. But what happens metaphorically here is that the locust plague begins to build out into something much bigger. And you realize by the end of chapter 2, really by the middle of chapter 2 and the middle of chapter 1, this isn't just about a locust plague. The locust plague is now an army with chariots and horses. And you begin to realize, oh, this is a metaphor here for something much bigger. These four different kinds of locusts, by the way, um, one a scholar scholar that I, I, I quite admire, his name is Ehud Ben Zvi. Now, Ehud Ben Zvi has identified these four locusts as primarily Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Right. So if you think about the locusts that then turn into an army, which then overtakes God's people, who are the four major, um, historical nations that overthrew and ruled the southern kingdom of Judah? Babylon, which then gave way to Persia, which then gave way to Greece, which then gave way to Rome. And what, what God promises them at the end of Joel chapter two is those years that were lost to you, I will. I will restore them. I will. I will bring them back to you. Um, third thing. Third thing. And this is really where I wanted to go today. We'll park here for a little bit. Another um, person I lean sort of heavily on in my own reading of the minor prophets is a German scholar named Jorg uh, Jeremias. Um Good dog name, I guess, if you're looking for one. Um, but Jorg. <laughs> Yorg um he claims something I think very interesting here. He claims that Joel's presentation of the day of the Lord is unlike any other presentation in the Old Testament because a whole generation of survivors in Israel survive it. They come out on the other side of it. And how do they come out on the other side of it? Well, if you remember from our talk with Hosea last week, They do so by embodying and enacting the repentance that Hosea calls for at the end of the book of Hosea. It's not a surprise, I think, to see that on the day of Pentecost, this is Peter's preaching text. Joel chapter 2, read this here, verses 12 and 13, you know this. Yet even now says the Lord, Return to Me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God because He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and repents of evil. Who knows whether He will not turn and repent and leave a blessing behind Him, a cereal offering, a drink offering for the Lord um, your God. What you have here is something troubling and difficult, troubling is not the right word, something difficult to come to terms with the use of time and temporality in the book of Joel. Because Joel seems to be dealing with something that happened for sure in Israel's past, but that past reality begins to encompass the future in such a way that you, your notion of time gets blurry, Right? In other words, what I think Joel is doing for us as a biblical book is presenting for us a playbook, a guidebook, a rule book, for lack of a better terms, to prepare people to survive the day of the Lord. It's a survivor's manual. You've seen these... Um, uh, how to survive books, you know, which are kind of, I've, I've found myself in Sam's at times while the family's going out lost in these survivor books. If a great white shark comes after you, hit it in the nose. I mean, I'm not sure that's going to help, but it's all there if that happens. <laughs> now, don't eat this berry right here. I mean, all these how to This is a survivor's manual for those who will experience the day of the Lord, which if we listen to Johnny Cash, right? And if we listen to the whole of the biblical witness, if we listen to the book of Revelation as it comes to bear on this, which is all humanity. All humanity will endure and will face the day of the Lord. There's a reckoning day. And here Joel presents for us, and again, it's not surprising that Peter uses this text as his Pentecost text to help us see what survival at that day will look like. And what does it look like? It looks like repentance. It looks like faith. It looks like trust. It looks like turning to the Lord. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? Rend your hearts, not your garments. I mean, what a, what a strong word in a world that valued external religious activity and by the way i don't think the prophets some will argue this i would not i don't think the prophets are saying and all that ritual stuff you do just bag it i mean forget i don't think they're doing that but i think what they're saying is but if you think the ritual the religious rituals you're performing are sufficient think again all right that's not enough This is Jeremiah coming into the temple and saying, by the way, don't say anymore the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord this is. Which I I think is probably um, Jeremiah quoting their liturgy. You know, the the liturgy of the temple. The temple of the Lord. You can hear that, right? The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord this is. Jeremiah says, don't say that anymore. Because if you think your liturgical speech is going to save you, think again. It's not enough. So what, where Joel is taking us and where Peter is picking up on the day of Pentecost is what God calls for our hearts that are rent, right? The, the, the publican who says, Lord have mercy on me a sinner. Where our verbal expression, Kyrie eleison, which we say ritually and rightly so in our worship week in and week out, when that Kyrie eleison reaches into the recesses of our hearts and grips us, where we recognize, I really don't have anything else to say before this one who's coming on his horse. This judge, when the man comes around, I don't have anything else to say but Kyrie eleison. So I have, Lord have mercy. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Reach deep into your hearts to see and recognize who you really are in light of the One who comes and return to Him. I mean, this is Luther's great insight and I I just lean on it so heavily. It's why the Gospel has to come to us again and again and again and again. It's why it comes to us all the time again and again. Because it shows us who we are and it shows us what we need. And our whole lives, according to Luther, and rightly so, are lives of repentance. Our whole lives are. So it's not, you know, one of those things you say, well, when did, when did you repent? Well, you know, October 31st, 1975. I decided to repent. No, it's, it's like, when, it, it's, we're always repenting. And again, I mentioned it last week and I'll say it again. It is, to my mind, one of the great gifts of our liturgy in this tradition is we have the ability and the opportunity to come together every week, identifying ourselves who we really are, rending our hearts and not just our garments, and turning again to the Lord, knowing in full confidence and hope that all of our, our assurance rests in Him, and that when we turn to Him that way, He meets us with His smile. He does. You know, one of the great issues in the period of the Reformation, I mean, you can sort of seize the, set these out. You know, big issues that become poignant theological matters in that time in history. The authority of Scripture, the nature of the Gospel, these are all very big. Another one, of which I think comes under the umbrella of the Gospel, is um, is where is assurance located? How do How are we assured that we're redeemed? How do we have assurance that we're redeemed? And I think Joel here, with the, with the Scriptures in their entirety coming together, let us know you have assurance because your assurance is resting in the sure and safe arms of someone other than yourself. It's not in you. Your assurance is resting in someone else. That's why we recognize ourselves. Our hearts are our rent. Our, we rend our hearts so we recognize who we really are. Lord, have mercy. Kyrie eleison. Knowing. That our assurance is fully and completely resting in Him. There, you, you remember right? what is the gospel? The gospel is laying low our low our human pride in light of the of the abasement and exaltation of our God in the Son. And on that final day, not going to be any boasting then either. Right? No, no one's gonna, no, 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 uh, it's not a, um, it's not a, a, a Girl Scout cookie brownie badge day, right? Look at all your, you know, no one's walking around. I just don't believe, I don't think you're around in heaven with their little vests on and the little crowns and stars. I just don't think, it's not gonna be like that. We're all walking around in white robes that aren't ours, that have been given to us. And this is where we rend our hearts and we turn our hearts to the Lord, knowing in full confidence that God, because of His character, always meets sinners at that place. Always. And that was the final point of the Day of the Lord matter here. The Day of the Lord and Joel and really throughout the Minor Prophets is rooted in the character of our God. He is merciful and He is severe. We do God no favors in downplaying His severity. We do no favors for God in trying to mitigate in any way the hard reality that Joel is presenting for us. Or that Johnny Cash sings for us. Oh, Johnny, you didn't really mean that. No, I really meant that. The man is coming around, right? And when that man comes around in his severity, we meet him in his mercy. And we will know that we will meet mercy on that day. That survivor's manual for that day is a manual that says you turn to him in full confidence and that's where your assurance rests. Never in looking at the self, Never identifying yourself as having arrived, but always by looking away from yourself to others, to Him. That was revolutionary for me at one point in my own Christian faith, I'd have to say. um, When I can still remember my professor saying, in effect, so many of you really still believe that your faith is measured by its own quality. It's not measured by its quality. I mean, what is Jesus? What, Jesus says it's like mustard seeds. It's, I mean, that's a not impressive specimen. Your faith is measured by its object. By the object of your faith. That's what makes faith, faith. It's not because it looks to the self, but it looks away from the self to the complete and finished work of the other. Rend your hearts, not your, not your garments. Okay, you want to bat this around a little bit? Questions? Thoughts? Angry responses? <laughs> Alright, I'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for um, these friends. And and Lord, thank you for books like Joel. I mean, when are we reading Joel? Um, but you have these four, three-chapter books in your Word that are so small and tiny and tucked away in just weird corners of your Bible that Yell at us the good news of Jesus. They, they, they announce it. They proclaim it. That the day of the Lord is awesome and it's terrible. It's darkness. And we know when we come to the cross, we see that day of the Lord on full display. And there is Jesus enduring the darkness, the gloom, the judgment of that day for us so that when that day on the final day arrives, we will not have to endure it. We'll be survivors. Not because of ourselves, not because of our self-sufficiency, but because of Your glory and Your grace. And we thank You. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.